Welcome to TLD Talks, where we share insights about key legal and business matters that are impacting SMEs today. Bringing together experts from a range of backgrounds, we'll be tackling the issues that matter to you. I'm Ed Simpson, CEO of The Legal Director, and I'm joined on today's podcast by Neil Lum of insurance broker Valang. And we're going to be having a chat about the essential but often misunderstood topic of insurance. So welcome, Neil. For the benefit of of our listeners, could I ask you to introduce yourself and the work of Valang? Yeah, thanks very much, Ed. So um, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm Neil Lum. My day job is I'm the Group Sales and Marketing Director of Insurance Broker Valang. Uh, And we specialise in in really three areas. Uh, One is risk management, two is corporate insurance, and three is employee benefits. And primarily, we work with SMEs and mid-corporate businesses. Do you have a particular sector that you focus on? Are there any particular characteristics of the businesses you work with? We definitely have some specialisms that we've developed within our business. A couple of good examples might be uh, technology, fintech, businesses who trade internationally, or businesses involved in advanced manufacturing. Uh, But I guess the reality is our book has grown up by helping businesses uh, who come from pretty much every sector. So unless you want to insure an aircraft or a boat, generally speaking, we can help. Most of our clients are between 50 and 1,000 employees, which is quite a big range. But it's more about what the requirements of the client are. If they need some specific advice, some specific help, Uh, across a whole range of risk in their business. Those are the ones that we tend to work with best. Fantastic. So you said one of the key areas that you look at is is around risk management. Where does insurance fit into a business's risk management plan? So so insurance really is the third piece of a three-piece jigsaw. The first bit is, is really around risk identification. So broadly speaking, within any business, there are 20 main categories of risk, I would say. Everything ranging from uh, supply chain to brand protection to cyber resilience, all those good things. And the first step in that journey is for a business to understand where those risks exist. And importantly, getting that down in some kind of document. Because often what we find is that the knowledge of risk in a business is held by one or two key individuals. Now, if they go missing, that, that's a bit of a problem. The second area then is once you've understood risk, it's coming to a decision on what is our risk tolerance? You know, we know that risk is prevalent in every business, but certain businesses are quite conservative. They want to remove as much as possible. Um, others are, are quite pro-risk. They're happy to take a gamble and, and see how they go. But once you've understood your tolerance, it's then a case of, well, Those that we have a high tolerance to, how can we reduce them and mitigate them? Those that are quite low risk, how much time do we spend on them? Now, once you've understood what your risks are, what your tolerance is, and how you can reduce those risks through good processes or staff training, the third element then is, okay, from the risks we understand that are too big for us, they're just too risky for us to have on our balance sheet, we want to transfer them. And that's where insurance comes in. In effect, you're transferring the risk from your business to that of an insurance company. So that's where it fits in. It's the third part of that three-part jigsaw. Okay. And you mentioned there are, um, I think you said, 20 main categories 
of insurance. Can we just dig into a couple of those? So in my business, we have to have professional indemnity cover, which covers us for the risk of getting our advice wrong. What other sorts of lines of insurance would a typical SME be looking at? SMEs, in many respects, are no different to large corporates in that sometimes the law will tell you what you have to buy. Sometimes your professional body or a customer or a supplier contract may tell you what you want to buy. The risk then is largely optional and, again, comes back to this idea of risk tolerance. But broadly speaking, most SMEs and and indeed most mid-corporates, you'd be looking at some kind of protection for your assets. And assets would be your buildings, your warehouse, your stock, your machinery, your plant, your computers – You will then have other protection covering things like your public and products liability. So liability from damage you cause at third-party premises or to the public, or damage or injury which your products may cause for one reason or another. Uh, And then into the wider area, employers' liabilities is obviously a mandatory cover. But beyond that, thinking about how you protect your staff, lots of SME businesses would invest in things like group life assurance, uh, often known within our contracts of benefits as death in service. So if I die while I'm on the job, um, how does the business protect my dependents and family? So those would typically be the sorts of cover that almost everyone would buy. And then beyond that, you're into the realms of benefits, which might include things like private medical insurance or um, group income protection, those type of things. But they tend to be more optional, certainly in the SME market. Okay. And then another policy, which I remember from my days working with PLCs, uh, it wasn't mandatory, but it was seen as as essential. And I think I'm seeing it dribbling down into mid-range businesses is DNO. Could you just say a little bit about DNO and where that fits into the overall picture, sort of what sort of cover it would give? So, so directors and officers, it's probably worth starting at the top, which says, look, if you are a, a director or a senior official within a business, referred to as an officer, then actually legal legislation, the Companies Act, puts up upon you a legal duty to perform your role with care and skill at all times, acting with due diligence for the company and your customers. Now, we're all humans then, aren't we? So, you know, occasionally we have an off day. Occasionally we get things wrong. Now, if we get things wrong and our customers, our stakeholders, our investors, our bankers suffer as a result, then they're going to want some recompense. And where do they come? Well, they come looking for the people who run the company. It's a a common misapprehension that as a director of a company, you think, well, I'm working for a limited liability company, so therefore my liability is limited. Actually, it's not. In your personal capacity as a director or officer as a business, your liability is unlimited. Now, obviously being accused of doing something wrong and you actually having done something wrong can be different things. So directors and officers covers a couple of main areas. So number one is the cost of defense. Proving your innocence can be a very expensive business. So first of all, it would pick up defense costs in relation to the allegations made against you. Then let's say those allegations are proved. You've you've had an off day, something's happened, and the courts decide to make an award. It would pick up those awards made against you. 
And the third area um, is an area called corporate legal liability. And that means that actually in issuing a suit against the company or individuals, the business itself, the business entity may get drawn into that claim. And so the other element of DNO cover would protect the corporate entity against claims made against it for the same things as defense costs. Those are the three areas, defense costs, awards, corporate legal liability. Thank you, Neil. Are you seeing more businesses take out DNO policies at the moment? The market's cyclical, isn't it? And, and there'll be demand for certain lines at certain times and others at other times. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Ed. DNO has been in the market for you know at least 15, 20 years. Uh, and initially, as, as a newer product to market, take-up was very little, particularly with SMEs. If, if you're working for a mid-corporate or a PLC, you will always have this. As a director or a senior official, you would not want to be running a business in today's age without directors and officers. The take-up has, has increased year on year. Probably 35% of the market now buys DNO. But I would say there's still a big difference between the amount of SMEs who buy it, which is still quite low, against the number of corporates or PLCs that buy it, which would be very high. Are there any sort of triggering events or characteristics that you as a broker might say to one of your clients, you really should be considering DNO? For instance, if, if an SME is raising money from investors, would that be something that potentially would be a trigger for them to seriously consider taking out a policy like that? There are many circumstances, Ed, to be honest. Having DNO, first of all, sends a signal to whoever's involved, the stakeholders in your business, that you treat corporate risk seriously. Yeah, and it also says to the directors and officers that we're here to support you if you just have one of those days and, and make a mistake. So raising money from banks or any kind of institution who is either planning to invest or lend money, I would say that would be a good trigger. Any change in business strategy. But probably the most relevant I could give you right now is with economic times being as they are and the number of business failures increasing, when business fails, generally speaking, people lose. Whether that's the banks, whether that's investors, whether that's employees or the staff, someone loses. And it's usually someone's fault in someone's eyes. People are after the money back. And the starting point, generally speaking, is the directors and officers of that business. The general litigious nature of society says, even though you've not done anything wrong, just simply the cost of defending yourself can be so much that it could either close your business or certainly take a big chunk out of your bottom line. So why would you run that risk when the comparative cost of cover is still quite low? We've mentioned a minute ago that markets are cyclical, and I'm sure the insurance market is no different. We're obviously in unusual times at the moment. Nobody's quite sure where the economy is going. How does that reflect on the insurance market? So what's the insurance market like at the moment, and where do you see it going in the next 12 to 18 months? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great point. You're absolutely right. The insurance market is very cyclical. And we use terms within the industry of hard market and soft market. Those are terms that people listening to this might have heard from their broker or heard people from the industry talking about. And probably the easiest way I can describe this is imagine a clock, a clock face. Now, at 12 o'clock, that would be the hard market. And it's a great time to be an insurer in a hard market. 
rates are high, profits are good, there's just the right amount of competition, and everyone's happy. And what happens from then is lots of other investors, lots of other insurers look at that and think, wow, what a great place to get a return. I think I'm going to invest in insurance or in a particular line of insurance. So then what happens is between 12 and 6, what we tend to get is more competition in the market. More competition means that generally rates reduce as insurers try to get market share and cover widens to make their proposition the best in the market. Now, while rates are reducing and cover is widening, claims are getting bigger because insurers are on for much more uh, and there's less money in the kitty. And so follows the decline all the way through to six o'clock, which is the soft market, where competition is, is at its greatest. And that's a great time to be a buyer. You have lots of insurers clamoring over your business. You have lots of great deals. You have lots of wide cover. It's a great time to be a buyer. And it's a lousy time to be an insurer because nobody's making money in the soft market. So then what happens then? Six all the way back up to 12. If insurers are making losses, you can't sustain that position. Most insurers have shareholders. Most insurers also control people's pension funds. So there's a responsibility to get that business back to profit. So a number of things happen. Number one, insurers leave the market. They say, look, there's just no money to be had. I'm out. That in itself increases competition. So the ones who are left can charge more. And so follows the cycle back up to 12 o'clock where we're in a high growth, high return, high margin type of the market. Now, I'd say where we are right now and have been for about the last three or four years, it's probably about 10 to the hour. We've seen certain lines of business, so motor fleet, product liability, public liability, employer's liability, reasonably static in comparison to other lines of business. And reasonably static generally means they've been ticking up at the rate of claims inflation, generally between 5 and 7% a year. Other lines of business, for example, really tricky property risks that are either a high value or high risk. Directors and officers, professional indemnity, cyber, they've all gone through some significant rate connection over the last three to five years. Typically, I would say 15 to 20% year on year. In answer to the question, where do I see it going? We definitely see a, seeing a plateauing now. You know, most of the big composite insurers, the likes of the Zurichs and Axes and Royal Sun Alliances, the ones that people have heard of, they're now back to posting underwriting profits. Not in every line of business, but generally speaking, the graph is on the up for them, which is nice. So what we are seeing now is certainly a slowing of rate increases. I would expect them to continue ticking up by some percentage points because, you know, you think about if you're a car insurer, labor costs more, metal costs more, rubber costs more, everything they need to repair your car, it continues to increase. And so premiums need to keep track of that to keep insurers in profit. So I, I would summarize by saying a slowing of rate increases, but rate increases nonetheless, certainly for the next two to three years. Well, as somebody for whom our PI cover is probably our biggest single cost, and certainly we've seen that over the last, I guess, three years, I'm heartened to hear you say that things might be plateauing. So... So two years ago, a line of cover that probably many people haven't heard of suddenly became 
front page news, which was business interruption cover, without wanting to go into the ins and outs of the policies that were litigated, and I think went all the way to the Supreme Court. How has the last two years impacted the market for business interruption insurance? I'm guessing that some insurers might have got their fingers burnt by that, because my understanding was that the premiums for business interruption were relatively low, but the payouts that people were, when their businesses you know, literally closed overnight, the losses were potentially huge. Is that an area where there's been a sort of a fundamental realignment of, of what covers on offer and what it costs? Yeah, there absolutely has. The thing to remember about the insurance industry and COVID is that despite the fact that there wasn't a lot of cover out there for COVID, it's still globally the single biggest loss to the sector ever. It's in the region of hundreds of billions of pounds, you know, whether that's travel insurance, whether that's the business interruption cover that was there. But the fact is, for something of this scale, insurance was never meant to pick up a risk like COVID. There's only governments can pick up exposures that big. If there'd have been full COVID cover under every policy, there would now be no insurance industry. Interestingly, the, the cover that was there, particularly for business interruption, was probably there by accident as a result of the soft market. So what's happened in the, in the last couple of years are two things. Number one, you can bet your life every insurer now has COVID within their list of excluded diseases. But what it has forced people to do and where it has corrected is insurers are now a lot more interested in business resilience, which says that, look, if something like COVID comes along again, how equipped are you to survive? What about if your supply chain crumbles or your main factory, the way you buy goods, has to shut down for a month? How are you going to survive? So we're getting asked now a lot more questions around business recovery plans, disaster recovery, sometimes known as. And what they want to know is that a business is suitably geared up to handle as best they can these types of scenarios. We've been discussing primarily thinking of this from the, the point of view of the business, the business that's taking out the insurance. Can we look at it from, from the other side of things? So sure. the insurer, the underwriter, yeah. what are they looking at? Because I mean, certain policies you can effectively buy off the shelf, but for more sophisticated businesses that engage a broker like yourself, what are the underwriters actually looking for? How do they assess the risk in a business that comes to them with a proposal? So I would say underwriters generally are the most sophisticated bookies in the world. Yeah, these guys are all about assessing risk and the likelihood that that risk is going to come to fruition. And you've got to remember, these guys have hundreds of years worth of historical data, which tells them which sectors at what times in which geography are more likely to have claims than others. But also now there's these new forward-looking, predictive, AI-driven tools, which take into factors not considered before, but which are really good indicators of claim likelihood. You know, credit scoring would, would be a great example of that. So what they're doing is that they're assessing risk, and, and some general principles prevail within insurance. Number one, the higher the risk, the higher the premium. Those businesses who are assembling hand grenades are going to pay far more than those who are manufacturing metal widgets. Now, the interesting thing with insurers is that risk appetite evolves over time, and insurers will flirt, they'll come into markets, they'll go out of markets. 
But if I look at the bottom end, what I would call the micro end of the market, shops, offices, pubs, restaurants, the sort of risks that generally speaking look and feel the same no matter where you go. What they will be looking for there is actually the answers to some very, very simple questions. This stuff can be traded online very effectively. And historically, it runs pretty profitably for insurers. When you're getting into bigger, more complex risks, what they're wanting to understand is how a business manages risk within its organization. So how much it invests on training, how much it invests in risk management, how well it manages security and quality control and those types of factors. And these are all things that the predictive tools can't really take into consideration. It can't evaluate moral risk to that degree. So telling the story, telling the insurer how good your business is, is quite literally the difference between getting cover or not and at what price. I'm guessing as well, claims history will have a have an impact. So if you're coming to a, an underwriter with a clean claims history. And it's one of the most basic calculations insurers make. In fact, not just insurers, businesses generally. Pounds in versus pounds out. And if a business has, has suffered losses in the past, it's not to say they won't get cover, but the insurers are going to be saying, well, you know, if you historically have a £100,000 of claims every year, then the starting point for my price will be 100000 And then I'm going to factor in my expenses and then I'm going to factor in some profit. It's quite an easy calculation from there. If you are claims free, you are much more likely to get a better deal. So what should a business be doing? Again, I'm talking about a slightly more sophisticated, larger business. What should they be doing to be able to present themselves in the best light when they're coming up for renewal? There's a number of really simple steps. You know, as I talk through them, a lot of them will be really obvious, Ed. So the first thing is, look, when accessing the insurer market, the broker's got to be on top form. Anyone sat there running a business will pick a solicitor who understands their business. They will pick an accountant who knows numbers. So therefore, make sure your broker understands your business and give them the information to do so. You've got to remember with insurance that a business is entrusting literally the protection of tens of millions of pounds of assets to that broker or the safety of its workforce. So it's not a decision to be taken lightly. So first of all, pick your advisor and make sure they understand your business. The second thing is then spend time creating the presentation that will go to the market. Spend time explaining to insurers how you manage risk within your business, how you understand it at the top level, what you do to mitigate it, and how you practically handle it on a day-to-day. Those who invest time in the story will get a much better hearing. Don't leave it to the last minute. Last minute deals tend not to be the best. Invite some insurers to come and see your premises. Invite some insurers to your business and talk to them about it. Relationships and information count for a lot. So those will be really simple steps, I think. Start early, spend time on the story, build a relationship with your broker and insurers. Certainly from my experience, I think that's great advice. The the one thing I've learned is the earlier you start the process, the easier it becomes. The insurance market for solicitors is slightly odd in that we all renew pretty much on the same on the same day 
it does create a chaotic time. And if you're trying to do it at the last minute, it's um, it can make it very tricky. Neil, look, that's been fascinating. We always like to finish with some key takeaways. So if you were talking to a potential new client, the FD of, of a new client that's come to you and is approaching renewal, what would be the, the three top tips that you would want that FD to go away from your meeting with? Okay. So I'll, I'll probably just reiterate an earlier point, which is pick the right advisor. I, I've never met an FD. Normally FDs are really time pressured. And so often the path of least resistance is the one that's taken. From that point of view, your broker should be doing the job for you. It shouldn't be a case of uh, them coming to you and asking you for all the information. They should be going away, speaking to stakeholders in your business and coming and telling you where the risks are and what you can do about it. So pick the advisor. Second tip, start early. Three months as a minimum, but don't be afraid of getting some of this work done throughout the year. The more time you can spend on this, the better result you get. It just stands to reason. Thirdly, I would say invest time in understanding risk in your business. Now, what I mean by that specifically is I talk to a lot of clients and generally speaking, the renew insurance, the same cover year after year after year. On the principle, it's what we've always bought. I kind of know what it is. Let's just get on with it. Now, in a soft market environment where rates are low and cover is wide, the whole effort versus reward equation comes into place. Look, if I can get it cheaper it, it, without any effort, why bother putting the effort in? We're not in a soft market environment. We're in a tricky hard market environment. And so from that point of view, understanding risk in your business, understanding your tolerance for that risk might say, instead of buying a policy with a £100 excess, why not buy one with a £1,000 excess or a £5,000 excess? If you know that in your heart of hearts, you're never going to claim for anything less than that anyway, take a bigger excess, buy cover that's more relevant to your risk appetite and realize the benefits in real terms of premium saving by buying less cover. Sometimes it's not about buying more cover. It's about buying less cover that's more appropriate to your attitude to risk and what your business wants. That's a great place to finish because it's, it's kind of where we started as well, was understanding where insurance fits into the overall risk matrix, taking the time to understand what risks your business faces capturing those in a risk register somewhere, writing them down, and then understanding what your tolerance for risk is and, and what you actually want to offload onto the insurance market. Absolutely. Neil, thank you. That's been a great discussion. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, my pleasure, Ed. That brings us to the end of the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed our discussion today, you can subscribe to our monthly TLD talks covering a wide range of legal and management topics. You'll find details on our website, thelegaldirector.co.uk. And you can also find us on Apple, Spotify, and Google. If you'd like to know more about the wider work of The Legal Director, then do please give us a call on 0203 053 8613 or visit the website. <laughs>